Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with Steve Eisman. Uh, familiar to anyone who's read or seen The Big Short, of course. Now he's a portfolio manager with Newberger Berman Group. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Great to see you here. Thanks for, Thanks for having coming me. on the show. You, you focused on, you've paid so much attention to the integrity of the strength of the financial sector uh, in the U.S. And I want to just start there, if I could, asking you about what you make of the rhetoric we've heard from uh, this president, indeed from many Republicans, about the future of uh, financial reform and regulation uh, in this country. How worried are you about the, the integrity of that apparatus going forward? You know, I'm really not that worried about it at this point. I mean, let's just throw some numbers around sure. it. You know, when pre-crisis, let's use Citigroup as an example just to get some numbers. You know, pre-crisis, Citigroup was levered 35 to 1. You know, five years before that in 2002, it had been levered 22 to 1. Today it's levered 10 to 1. Uh-huh. You know, the last time Citigroup was levered 10 to 1, I probably wasn't alive. <laughs> so, I mean, I can honestly say that what the Fed has accomplished via the auspices of Dodd-Frank and the stress test, which is how the Fed regulates the banks, is that the United States banking system has never been this safe in anyone's lifetime. Now, what I think is going to happen, and I, I think the odds of Dodd-Frank being changed is extremely low mm. because you need 60 votes and... I think Senator Elizabeth Warren will probably get on the Senate floor and say, you're going to have to kill me if, 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 before I'm going to let anything happen here. Now, they may kill her, but that's what it, almost it's going to take. So let's put aside changing Dodd-Frank. Um, the Fed regulates the banks, and the person who has been the chief regulator is Governor Daniel Tarullo. Yeah, on his way out. Yeah. And he's resigned. So President Trump will appoint someone to replace him. And... That person will not be Daniel Tarullo. They'll have a very different orientation. And I think what's going to happen is um, via the stress test starting in 2018, because it's too late now um, for the 2017 stress test, uh, this test will be, let's just say, graded on a different curve. Uh (laughs) And the vocal rule will be reinterpreted. Today it's interpreted extremely strictly. Tomorrow it will be interpreted less strictly. So I think the leverage will start to go up. We're not going to go back anywhere to where we were. So maybe Citigroup goes from 10 times over the next several years to 12, 13, 14 times. That's more leverage and more risk in the system. But it's still significantly, significantly lower than we've ever seen anyway. So it's it's not a calamity. And the returns will start to go up because they'll be able to do more things on their balance sheet via, or like I said, the reinterpretation of the Volcker rule. And the profitability of the banks will go up considerably. When you look at the, the, the softness of the thickness of that cushion, that capital cushion, do you attribute it exclusively to the work of the Fed? Or do we have banks and, and, and executives here on Wall Street who learned a lesson from, from what happened well, a few years back? Let me put it to you this way. Um, the what the Fed has accomplished has been with the banks kicking and screaming. They have not done it willingly. They've been ordered to do it, and they haven't had a choice. When, when, when you look at the Fed, uh, when you look at these stress tests, they've changed over the years. Uh, are we closer to getting perhaps not a, a perfect stress test? And again, we, we, we note the departure of, of Mr. Tarullo, but uh, how, how good is the Fed now at assessing the, the integrity of these banks? You know, no one ever actually gets to see right. what's in those tests, so it's very hard to say. All you can just see is the net results. And, you know, like I said, going from 35 to 1 leverage to 10 to 1 leverage is like discussing the difference, the, the, the distance from Mercury to Pluto. It's just, it's so, it's so different, it's, you know, for people in my world, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's even hard to describe what that means. It's just so unbelievable. 
Steve Eisen working with his cell phone. It's part of being the guest. <laughs> You're allowed to come into the studio with cell phone blaring. He's making cell phone adjustments right now. <laughs> Help me here as you get out your the bat phone uh, to work here on it. And I, you know, I know you want to go back to banking as well, but that the, the speed of information now. The speed of flow, everybody glued to their cell phones, everybody with information flow. Has that changed the game? I actually think it has not. Um, you know, if you go back to, you know, where I made my name in 2007 and 2008, there wasn't a lack of information flow. It's just how you interpret th that flow. So, you know, people have more access to information. That's true. But there are no naked facts in this world. You have to interpret them, and it's how you interpret them that really matters. How do you interpret President Trump? <laughs> That's a dangerous question. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we're here. It's Friday. Um, we wouldn't ask this question on Wednesday, but That's good. we're going That's to bed on Friday. Wednesday. Wednesday. Exactly. Yeah, the door's over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I look at it, you know, let's leave aside the social stuff, which is always dangerous to talk about. Sure. Just from a pure economic perspective, um, you know, I, I do think we need tax reform in this country. It's long overdue. Hopefully what they'll do will be good, but we don't know what I – mean, they haven't presented a plan, so there's nothing to criticize yet. Um, but, you know, my hope is that with lower tax rates, you will see companies be more willing to invest in the United States. Um, I think that, you know, some of the criticisms that the president has gotten about trade are misplaced. Mm. And the reason why I say that is, you know, if you go back to NAFTA in the 1990s, you know, NAFTA was sold to the American public as it's going to improve GDP and it's going to create millions of jobs. And now whether NAFTA improved GDP or not, we could debate, but there's no question that we lost millions of jobs. And so I think the president's um, critique of the whole way that free trade has been done in our country over the last 30 years, he has a very valid point. And, you know, maybe hopefully they'll make changes that are helpful. When you hear him talk about making changes, about pursuing these bilateral deals and doing it rather quickly, uh, is he demonstrating to you uh, optimism or naiveness about the, the way that Washington works and the way, the way that you can get a deal like that? Uh, that's just political rhetoric to me. I mean, yeah. what, do you, what do you think he's going to say? I'm, you know, we're going to try and do this, but we'll, we might fail. So, you know, he's got to position it so that things look hopeful. Is there opportunity for you in the ambiguity when it comes to tax reform that we don't know what's going to happen? As an, as an investor, as somebody who's, who's watching the market, um, is this a, a – a, is there any opportunity? I think this is just a wait you? and see yeah. to see what – I mean, there's more than ambiguity. Yeah. We don't know anything. <laughs> no one's proposed – hasn't proposed anything yet, so it's more than ambiguity. Yeah. I don't know anything. Yeah. Is there too much money chasing distressed debt? You mentioned earlier on our television It's not my area of expertise. Well, I, don't I don't mean have an opinion You mentioned that. subprime autos. Right. Right. I mean, is there, is, there, is there just – like in private equity and the rest of it, is there just such a wall of money – that you can't get advantage? Or is there so much dumb money chasing after opportunities in the mathy, securitized world that it creates a huge opportunity for you? Because they do dumb things. You know, it's a, it's a, maybe it's an opportunity, but in a zero-rate world, it's, it's an opportunity that you can't really take advantage of yet. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, when you take a step back, you know, how do you value any asset or, or company? You know, in theory, <clears throat> well, it's a discounted cash flow. And, in a, in a, and the question in a discounted cash flow is what discount rate do you mm -hmm. use? And in a world of zero rates, okay. the discount rate is zero. Here's what we're going to do. We're, <laughs> we're going to continue with Steve Eisman. And, and this is the third or fourth time this morning he's mentioned the great distortion yes. about the, the, the complete linkage of central bank to fixed income distortion that we see. Let's come back and talk about that. And the path as we get out to where he wants to be, which I believe he said earlier was three or four uh, rate increases out. We'll do that with Steve Eisman of Newberger uh, Berman. Steve, I, I just put out on Twitter, it's a log normal world after all. And there's something about being in the finance business where when smart, well-meaning people outside of finance, start lecturing finance people on a log normal world, people get a little moved, which brings us to the president of the Minneapolis Fed uh, right now. Neil Kashkari has ideas about how to fix the banks, and many in your world go, eh, maybe not. What's he getting wrong? 
Well, <clears throat> I mean, Kashkari seems to think that the banks are um, still too levered and that they should have three times more capital than they currently have. Um, so let me say as politely as I can, I think that view is ridiculous. Um, I mean, he's out-Swissing the Swiss. It's insane. I mean, let's, th let's do some math. Citigroup today is levered 10 to 1 and has a return on equity of 8%. So if you triple the capital, Citigroup's going to have a return on equity of 2.5%. Bad things happen to banks when it is mathematically impossible for them to achieve uh, their costs of capital. And let me elaborate on that for a second. That would mean there are only two eventualities that could happen here. Either spreads on new loans would have to explode so that the banks would be able to make their return on capital, which would not be good for anybody, or all banks would have to shrink because every single loan that you would make would destroy capital. You know, the point of a banking system, when you think about leverage, leverage is, is like little bear's porridge. It has to be just right. Too much leverage is bad, but too little leverage is bad too because the banks recycle money. And if, and if you have too little leverage, they're not performing their function of recycling money into the banking system. It betrays a complete misunderstanding of how banks work. I, I want to elaborate on this for a second. You know, I don't have any institutional obligations to anybody. I work at Newberger Berman. If I have the opinion that, that the banks are undercapitalized, I could say it. Nobody owes me anything. They could agree with me. They could disagree with me. There's been a process in place for six years of regulating banks and delevering them. And last year, Kashkari shows up, and, and the first thing out of his mouth is the process is broken and we need more capital. I was like, you know, wait a second. The, you're part of the Minneapolis Fed. You, you just don't show up and try and blow up what people have been doing for the last six years. And, you know, and I, like I said on the TV, you know, prior to the, um, the financial crisis, bank regulators did about as bad a job as anybody's ever did done in the history of planet Earth. Um, you know, thankfully, you know, Governor Daniel Tarullo took over and he's done a fantastic job. And I take great umbrage at somebody showing up and announcing to the whole world that the guy, Tarullo, who's done such a fantastic job, doesn't know what he's talking huh. about because it's, it's insane. We were talking about the, the transparency or lack thereof in these stress tests, and let me just ask you the last minute we've got with you about the, the call that we've heard over the last week from Senator Tom Cotton and others uh, in a letter to the Treasury Secretary to look at the, 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 the jurisdiction of the Financial Stability Oversight Council to reevaluate that and, and look more closely at too big, too big to failness and, and systemic importance. Do, do you see an erosion with the FSOC as well? Is, that, is, the, is the role of the, the FSOC going to change? No, I don't, I, that, that letter is it. Irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah. It's not, it's, who cares? Yeah. It's just not mean, mean anything. You know, it's just some politicians mouthing off. doesn't mean a thing. Steve Eisman, thank you so much. With thank you. Room, always valuable. Some real insight there, and particularly thank you for your comments earlier on uh, the sport of asset management. Mr. Eisman, clearly optimistic on uh, the good times for active management once we get rate normalization. That was such a good band, David Girl. <laughs> right now, they were awesome. Get the band reunited. They did Emerson, yes. Lake, and Palmer okay. like nobody. I could, you know, just, they were just superb. We've got a wonderful interview coming up. Our David Weston, Alex Steele, and John Farrell. With Peter Navarro, let's be clear here. He's got he's got bulletproof chops. Tufts University. His doctorate is from Harvard in economics. He's out of Irvine. His acclaimed book, Death by China, and he has been a lightning rod of support and criticism uh, for Trump economics. So this is a timely conversation, certainly with the uh, leadership of China meeting with Mr. Trump tomorrow. And now to David Weston. Trump will be signing two executive orders on trade and joining us now on both Bloomberg television and on radio to take us through these two orders is the director of the National Trade Council in the White House, Dr. Peter Navarro. Peter, welcome back to the program. Good to have you here. 
David, how are you today? Good, thanks. So we've had some preview of these two orders. And I'd like to talk about them some. First, the one that's going to review country by country possible unfair trade practices. Is that based largely on the question of a trade deficit with those countries? That's correct, David. There's uh, about 16 countries with which we have significant trade deficits. And the bigger picture here is that the United States is the freest trader in the world. Let's be clear about that. Uh, on balance, we have the lowest tariffs. We have the lowest non-tariff barriers, yet we have the largest trade deficit. And these deficits uh, are causing job loss. They're causing uh, our factories to move offshore. They're a reflection of that. And so, uh, historically, what's going to happen with this omnibus investigation into trade abuses is that the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, uh, with the U.S. Trade Representative, are going to take a comprehensive look at all of the different ways uh, that that trade deficit might be happening um, in the trade space. We're going to look at differential tariffs, non-tariff barriers, things like forced technology transfer, all of these things, and in 90 days, um, Wilbur Ross is going to deliver a report to the desk of the president, and the information in that report will basically be the foundation which will guide uh, our, our future trade policy. Right. Uh, the, the purpose um, of this investigation is basically to fulfill a promise to the American people that, that the candidate Trump made uh, to basically look into these trade abuses, correct them, right. do smart new deals in a way which will basically put our people back to work and bring our factories back on shore. So, so Peter, uh, it's certainly trade deficits are something to take a look at. But as an economist, I'm sure you would agree that a trade deficit does not necessarily equate to unfair trade practices. There are lots of reasons you can have a trade deficit. So is it possible that at least some of these countries, you'll take a look at it and decide, you know what, it's for other factors. It's not because of unfair practices. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're exactly right. I mean, take Canada, for example. Uh, we run uh, a trade deficit in goods with them of over $10 billion, but a lot of that is driven uh, by uh, oil, energy. So no big deal there. On the other hand, we have other countries uh, which are cheating us blind. Uh, we have also a systemic problem uh, with uh, the, our taxes, our income tax system, uh, relative to the rest of the world, which runs on a VAT, which creates a disadvantage uh, for us, uh, for, for our country. So these are all the things we need to look at. Uh, trade deficits aren't bad per se, but when you run a large and persistent trade deficit for as long as we have, uh, it's basically a proxy for all of the job loss, the slow economic growth, the low wages uh, that we've suffered over the last 15 years. And President Trump, is going to deliver on this promise to turn that right around. And this is a big first step. And it is historic. No American president has ever looked at this problem uh, and committed to solving it. This, and, and the Secretary of Commerce is going to deliver an historic report. And in 90 days, we're going to start moving. And Peter, it raises the question about what the proper remedy is insofar as you find unfair practices. Is it to enforce the existing laws, including under WTO, more effectively, or is it new agreements? Is it possible, and this goes to the second order, as I understand it, that goes to anti-dumping and countervailing duty enforcement. Is it possible that we have the rules in place, we just haven't been enforcing them effectively? Well, that is, a, David, that's a great segue to the second order. And let me describe that um, for, the, for, for your viewers. Um, there's, there's two ways that we can enforce uh, against cheating. Uh, one is the, called anti-dumping, and that's basically to defend our manufacturers and workers against countries uh, that dump products into our markets below cost. And then the other part of that is what's called countervailing duties, and that's when foreign governments uh, unfairly subsidize their industries and we get products essentially at costs lower than they should be. So the Department of Commerce historically has been able to file these anti-dumping countervailing duty cases. We have almost 400 of them active right now, covering 40 countries. But the problem is that the duties we are supposed to collect, um, we haven't always been collecting. Uh, since 2001, 
we failed to collect $2.8 billion in these duties. And it's not just the revenues we lose when we fail to collect them. It's also the fact that our uh, industries uh, don't get the kind of relief that they were promised when they filed their cases. So Customs and Border Protection, we're giving them the tools basically to turn that situation around. And this order, uh, besides being a great order on trade and the economy, is a, is a beautiful example of interagency cooperation in the new Trump administration because Secretary Ross at Commerce, Secretary Kelly at the Department of Homeland Security, and the Commissioner at uh, Customs and Border Protection, Kevin McAleenan, they all worked Peter. together on this. It's a great order. Well, Peter, nowhere is this more clear than what has already happened over the last few years in terms of China and the anti-dumping tariffs on steel, which at some point hit triple-digit taxes, and that did wind up benefiting the steel industry here. Are you looking at those kind of tariffs, like triple-digit on certain products from certain countries, and what about retaliation? Well, you managed to go off in, in, in a direction that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. We're talking today about two orders. One, which will look at uh, trade abuses in a comprehensive way, and another, which is directed at collecting customs duties. Uh, the principle here for the Trump administration is smart, tough trade negotiations. The information we're going to get from the omnibus investigation will inform that. The second pillar of President Trump's trade policy is strict uh, enforcement and compliance. And when you have uh, cheaters basically sending products in here after we've already had uh, duties assessed and they don't pay them, that's not the kind of behavior we're going to tolerate. So right, this is the, the, let's not, don't even go there. I mean, we're not talking about trade wars or tariffs or anything like that. That's that's your rhetoric. We're talking about But you specifically about said non-tariff and tariff orders. barriers. I mean, you specifically mentioned that you're looking at tariff and non-tariff barriers and, and anti-dumping, and that's exactly correct. what we're talking about. Exactly. And what so, we're going to do with this report, if I may, what, what we're going to do with this report is lay a strong foundation for measured, analytically based steps that we're going to take to fight what's happening with unfair trade practices uh, in this world. And look, I, I go back to the beginning of what I said. We are the freest trader in the world. We have the lowest tariffs. We have the lowest non-tariff barriers. And that's not fair to the American people. And, and we're going to look at the causes of these trade deficits. There's going to be some causes that are unrelated uh, to trade per se. But when it's trade and when there's unfair or non-reciprocal behavior by any of our trading partners, I can assure you President Trump is going to take action. How significant, Peter, are FX distortions to the problems that you're talking about currently? You say again? How significant are FX distortions to the problem that you're talking about currently? Ah, okay. Little code word there. The FX. You're talking about the currency issue. Uh, Peter, you're so, familiar with foreign no, exchange and FX. Yes, come indeed. on, please. Yeah, Give me yeah, a break. Yes. Go on. Yeah, no, come on. Um, look, um, Secretary Ross uh, is going to look uh, carefully at many, many factors. Currency misalignments. Uh, are certainly one of them in an international environment. We'll, he will look at that uh, and come up with an assessment and see where we are. Is that something that will be brought up with uh, President Xi next week, Peter? Uh, the, these orders are totally unrelated to the Chinese visit, and I have nothing to say about the Chinese visit. I'm here to talk about the two orders today. Well, let's, let's talk about what's happening within the White House. There's been a lot of reporting about a division between the nationalists like yourself, Peter, and the Bannons of this world, and a division between yourself and, say, Gary Cohn, the former president of Goldman Sachs. What do you make of those reports at the moment? And is that a fracture within the White House, or is that just a natural debate that's emerging? Well, two days ago, we were sitting in a room all together going over these executive orders, and we agreed that these would move forward today. So that's, that's pretty good. So, but, so, but, you know, look, look I'm here. I know, I know you want to sell soap here with, with salacious stories or whatever, but I'm here to talk about two historical events. The omnibus investigation is historical because no sitting president has ever looked at the issue of trade deficits and trade abuses in this way and promised to take action. The Customs and Border Protection uh, uh, order is historic because here we have uh, agencies working strongly together with the White House solving a problem with a stroke of a pen in, 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 in less than 30 days when we're looking at this uh, that's gone on for 15 years. So I would say that's pretty good for, the, for President Trump and his team.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Good morning, everyone. David Gurren, Tom Keenan Moments, our Michael McKee in Florida, his Florida, with William Dudley. David Gurren, this is going to be great. Bill Dudley is one of the most interesting practicing economists today. 11 years at Goldman Sachs, out of the new College of Florida, a really interesting school. And then his PhD at Berkeley, Bill Dudley's done original economics. Full disclosure, uh, he was in my book, Flag on One Engine. And his phrase in there, uh, David Gurren, was from Patrick O'Brien on the budget deficit there is not a moment to lose and it's ever more so today absolutely very eager to hear what he has to say to our uh, our colleague michael mckee who has been traveling the world quite literally traveling the world talking to, to central bankers and, and policymakers here yeah. over these last uh, few weeks uh, he's in sarasota for the for the interview today just a host of interviews this week kathleen hayes talking yeah. with eric rosengren jim bullard coming up on bloomberg radio as well at 10 o'clock wall street time and what's great about him versus other presidents and governors is he was knee deep in the practicing grind of market economics where he had to publish weekly with his team, including Jan Hatzius, now uh, there, Ed McKelvey, of course, uh, there for years at Goldman Sachs. But he's one of the few people in the academic central bank world that actually did the market economics grind, which gives you great respect for being wrong, because as you know, you're wrong often, David. <laughs> Early and often. We'll admit that for sure. Uh, eager to hear what he has to say about the Fed's balance sheet. Michael McKee saying he's eager to talk more about that with Bill Dudley. It's something that Bill Dudley spoke about uh, in broad strokes yesterday in a speech uh, down in Florida. Michael McKee be following up uh, on yeah. that. And of course, uh, just his outlook for, for growth, outlook for rate increases, something of paramount interest to all of us as well. And of course, the background on this, of course, coming off the Fed was that phrase from our Kathleen Hazer conversation with Jim Bullard later this morning of noisy GDP. And at the end of the day, with the mandate uh, that we have of inflation, the mandate of jobs, uh, there's also the quiet, unspoken mandate of economic growth has no substitute. The backdrop against CBO report yesterday, pretty grim on the future budget, and also the backdrop of uh, challenging productivity numbers uh, the other uh, day. Here is our Michael McKee. Well, good morning. We are at New College, a small liberal arts institution here in Sarasota that is the Honors College for the Florida University System. It is also the alma mater of New York Fed President Bill Dudley. And we thank you for having us at your alma mater this morning. We're glad <laughs> to have you. Thank you for joining us. The mood on global Wall Street, the, the, the question on global Wall Street has shifted recently from when is the Fed going to move to how far, how fast. So to put it in terms that have come up in the last week or so, are you a two more this year kind of guy or maybe a three more this year kind of guy? Um, how many times do you see the Fed moving in 2017? Look, it really depends on the data. So trying to predict, uh, you know, what, uh, what's going to happen based on what I think today is not, I don't think that very relevant. Look what happened in 2016. In the fall of 2015, the median consensus was four hikes in 2016. We did one. Uh, 2017, going into the year, the median was three. So far, we've done one. Uh, so I think, you know, I think where, where, the, where the FOMC is, is I think in a reasonable place. Uh, you know, a couple more hikes this year seems reasonable. Uh, you know, if the economy is a little bit stronger than we expect, we could go do a little bit more. And if it's weaker than we expect, we could do a little bit less. Well, what tells you it's time to raise rates? It took a long time and a Bill Dudley interview to convince Wall Street you were going to move in March, primarily because people were saying, well, nothing really changed in the economy between December and March. Well, the fact was nothing really changed. The economy was on the same trajectory, growing above trend, generating sturdy job gains. And we basically had been trying to communicate to people if the economy stayed on that trajectory, we were going to gradually remove monetary policy accommodation. So the March move was consistent, I think, with what we said previously, uh, because the economy was performing in line with what we were ex- anticipating. Well, does that mean you would consider moving in May, or do you want some time to see what happened with this rate increase, to see if there are changes in the economy? And, of course, there's no press conference, so mechanically it's a little more difficult. Well, I don't think that we're at this stage in the cycle where there's a great urgency to tightening monetary policy because the economy is growing just a little bit above trend. 
And inflation is still a little bit below our target if you look at the underlying uh, pace of inflation. If you, for example, if you look at the core personal consumption's expenditures deflated was running about one and three quarters percent. So that tells you that there's not this huge rush that we have to tighten monetary policy quickly. The economy is clearly not overheating. At the same time, policy is accommodative. And we're pretty close to full employment. So it makes sense to very gradually take back accommodation to get monetary policy you know, t- closer to neutral as we go through 2017. All right. Well, where's neutral? How high will you go? Well, I think the you know, consensus about, among many people is that uh, the neutral uh, federal funds rate, so adjusted for inflation, is somewhere between 0 and 1%. So at our 2% inflation target, you're probably talking a neutral federal funds rate, maybe somewhere in the you know, 2 to 3% range. Uh, so we're, we're, we're right now we're you know, 91 basis points or so on the federal funds rate. So you know, we have maybe you know, 100, 150 basis points of tightening ahead, perhaps. Uh, but it all depends on the economy. Uh, if the economy you know, is stronger, that would t- suggest that we have a little bit more to do. If the economy is weaker, then, then probably not so much. Well, what about the pace? How soon do you need to get that 100 basis points? I don't think that's soon. I mean, if you look at the last year, we've been growing above trend, generating very sturdy job gains, yet the unemployment rate hasn't really moved very much. So that tells you that there's actually some, maybe a little bit more excess slack in the labor market than, than you would think just looking at the unemployment rate. The fact is that people who have been discouraged workers are coming back into the labor force. So that allows you to generate pretty sturdy job gains without putting a lot more pressure on the labor market. Are you doing that? Is it the level of Fed funds that is stimulating job growth? In other words, if you raise rates, are you going to cut that off? Well, I think you're, going to, you're, going to, you're perhaps going to slow that down a little bit, and that's, that, that would be the goal. I don't think it's a question of you know, the spigot wide open or the spigot shut. I think the, the spigot, just turning the spigot down a little bit so the economy isn't, isn't, is at less risk of overheating uh, as we go forward in 2017, 18, and beyond. Well, fiscal policy, did you adjust any of your forecasts to account for something happening in 2017 or 18? Not explicitly, because I don't know what it is. Uh, how big it is, or when it's going to happen. Uh, I do think that it's true that the likelihood over the next couple of years is fiscal policy becomes more expansive. But until I see a little bit more visibility in terms of what it is, when it is, and uh, how big it is, uh, I'm not going to incorporate it explicitly into my growth forecast. Now, what I think, the fact that I think fiscal policy is likely to turn somewhat stimulative over the next couple of years, that just means that, that, that affects my view of the risk to the outlook. So this creates a little bit more upside risk to the outlook than before. Well, uh, consumer and corporate confidence, very high since the election. But do you see evidence? Uh, are corporate leaders telling you that they're acting on that confidence? Are they investing? I would say at this point there's been a huge increase in both consumer and business sentiment. but. It's not translating, at least yet, into the hard data. So this is one reason why when we get the uh, 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 first quarter GDP numbers at the end of uh, uh, next month, uh, they're probably going to be a little weaker than one might might expect, given uh, the the very large improvements that we've seen in, in consumer and business sentiment. So the jury's out. Is, is the rise in confidence going to translate to forward into greater economic activity or not? We'll see. Do business leaders say they have to see something concrete before they spend? I think that you know, they probably would like to see more clarity on what's, for example, going to happen to the corporate tax regime. I imagine that's important to them. But I think that, that generally the mood is pretty, pretty, pretty upbeat. Do you think that uh, fiscal policy, as being talked about, can generate 3% or better growth on a sustained basis, or are we a 2% economy? It all depends on what happens to productivity growth. If we can do things that push up productivity growth, we can also push up the sustainable growth rate of the economy. If you think about the sustainable growth rate of the economy, it's basically how fast is the labor force growing plus productivity. Labor force in the U.S. is only growing at about a half percent a year. So to get to 3 percent, we'd need 2.5 percent growth in productivity. Not impossible. We did it in the late 1990s. But you'd have to say these policies are going to have, you know, have, are going to have to lift productivity in some, 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 some sort of way. What, what kind of policy would do that? Well, I think there's no question that infrastructure spending over time would raise productivity growth. Uh, better education uh, for people, a bit more, more job training. In other words, lifts the capabilities of workers would lift productivity over time. Uh, some types of regu- deregulation might also help on the productivity front. Uh, so there are things you can do to lift productivity. The question is how much will you get from those things? 
Fed's balance sheet, just under $4.5 trillion, back into prominence, members of the Open Market Committee talking about it. Big implications for investors when you start doing something. So the first question is, when do you address it? How do you know that it is time to start doing something? Well, we've said uh, publicly a number of times that uh, we're not going to normalize, begin to normalize the balance sheet until the federal funds rate normalization process is well advanced. And the question is, what does well advanced mean? I think generally if you talk to people in the market, they think that that's going to start sometime with the federal fund rate between 1% and 2%. So not quite yet. Uh, wouldn't surprise me is, you know, sometime later this year or, or, or sometime in 2018, should the economy perform in line with our expectations, that we'll start to gradually let securities mature rather than reinvesting them. Uh, we've been very clear that the balance sheet is really not our primary tool of monetary policy. Short-term interest rates are our primary tool of monetary policy. So if we do something on the balance sheet, it's going to be something that's going to be very passive, and it's just going to be running in the, in the background. So we, we, we want to do this in a way that was just very, very not a big deal for the you markets. S- you suggested yesterday uh, tapering <clears throat> your reinvestments rather than just ending them. But given the taper tantrum we saw a couple of years ago, wouldn't the markets just take it as a sign that it's ending and adjust accordingly? Well, I'm not that worried that the markets are going to react to changes in our balance sheet in a, in a, in a violent way because, because it's already factored in. I mean, most people think that sometime late this year or sometime in 2018, we're going to gradually start to allow securities to mature and end, gradually end the reinvestment process. So I think that's already an expectation. The taper tantrum in 2013, I think, was as violent as it was uh, because people conflated uh, the idea that we're going to reduce the pace of asset purchases with pulling forward the timing of monetary policy tightening. Uh, in this case, I, from my, my personal opinion, if we start to normalize the balance sheet, that's a, a substitute for short-term rate hikes because it would also work in the direction of actually tightening financial conditions. So if and when we decide to begin to normalize the balance sheet, we might actually decide at the same time to take a little pause in terms of raising short-term interest rates. Do you stop reinvestments in mortgages only or also treasuries? Because if you look at currency in circulation and other Fed obligations, your treasury holdings are just about equal to what you would need as an asset to hold against your liabilities. Well, that's for the Federal Open Market Committee to decide, and we haven't made those decisions yet. Uh, Does it make sense to focus on mortgages, or is there a problem with doing that because of prepayments? Look, I think you could, you know, my, my own personal view, I don't, I don't think it's, there's a strong need to differentiate between mortgages and treasuries, just speaking for myself, but it's up to the committee to decide. How do you envision conducting monetary policy in the future? Do you go back to a Fed funds rate? Uh, do you continue with the current system of interest on excess reserves and repos and the Fed funds rate trade somewhere in the middle of it? Um, and when do you make a decision on that? Well, we don't have to make that decision for quite quite some time, but I, I would just emphasize that the current system is working very well. Uh, you know, there are some questions. Would, what, would the Fed be able to raise the federal funds rate uh, in a reliable and predictable manner with such a large balance sheet? Uh, so we, we, we created uh, the overnight reverse repurchase uh, agreement to set a floor, and we have the ability to pay interest on excess reserves as sort of the ceiling. And the federal funds rate has traded right in the middle of that range. And when we raise our target by 25 basis points, the federal funds rate rises by exactly 25 basis points. So from my own perspective, having run the, uh, the, the, the open market desk uh, in 2007, 2008, when things were a lot more turbulent than they are now, this system works really well from my, from my perspective. At the end of this year, you'll have a bit of a political problem in that uh, the two leaders of the Federal Reserve, their terms are going to be up, and we have to find out if they're going to be reappointed. If Donald Trump were to come to you and say, is Janet Yellen, is her policies... Uh, are they my friend uh, in what I'm trying to do for the U.S. economy? What would you say? Absolutely. I mean, the Fed has a very clear mandate from Congress, uh, maximum sustainable employment in the context of price stability. How is the Fed doing on that mandate? We're at a 4.7% unemployment rate. Inflation is a little bit, if you look at underlying inflation, it's a little bit below our 2% objective. But we're not really very far off uh, those objectives. We're adjusting monetary policy, I think, in a very careful, measured way. So I don't see any reason why... Uh, people wouldn't look at uh, 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 Chair Yellen and say she's doing a really great job. We're going to go outside the box now. Uh, He is prolific within the industry. His writing has been prodigious, to say the least. 
And I find that with Dr. L. Arian, there are always the same questions. What's the Fed going to do? How many rates are they going to increase this year? We would like to wax philosophical on what Dr. L. Arian is world acclaimed for, and that is game theory. Mohammed, good morning. And we do so in the backdrop of Anne-Marie Slaughter's wonderful new book, which opens with Thomas Schelling, with her sitting in a classroom with Fuda Jami years ago, with Kiyoen and Nye, the powered independence. I want to go back to Cambridge in 1982, John Maynard Smith, Evolution and the Theory of Games. This administration knows nothing about game theory. What do they need to know about the theory of games? What does the Trump administration need to know about the game theory of chicken that you know so well? Yeah, I don't know if they know nothing about game theory because they are exhibiting certain element of game theory in the approach they're taking with the rest of the world. You see this in particular on trade. They've come out and they've warned that they're willing to do things that may not be in the interest of the global economy and not in the interest of the U.S., with a view to getting concessions. And I think you will see quite a few concessions coming their way. I think if you want to see typical game theory, look at what's happening in the UK and the European Union over Brexit. That is classic game theory right now. Mm -hmm. Within that game of chicken is Schelling's conflict and strategy, the artist strategy, Avinash, uh, Avinash Dixit. What is your art of strategy for Prime Minister May? So I think she is doing what I would do, which is she is saying this is what we can achieve. She is trying to define the benchmark for the negotiations and focusing in particular on securing free trade with Britain outside the EU. What's interesting is how quickly the EU came back and said, oh, no, that's not how it's going to work. Um, So I think the EU also read the script. And the question is going to be, do they end up in a prisoner's dilemma where they cannot collaborate and they're both worse off? Or do they find a way to iterate to something that makes them both better off? On that note, what's the what's the outcome of that prisoner's dilemma if we get it? We know, of course, that if there's no trade deal by the end of this two-year period, we go back to WTO uh, rules. How do you see this playing out? So it's about, David, it's about ultimately three things, trade, money, and people. And the U.K. wants to get agreement on trade first, then minimize the money it will have to pay, and then hope that it can get an agreement on people, which, remember, that's what really drove the Brexit vote, the migration issue. Um, the, the EU says, no, we're not going to do this sequentially. We're going to do simultaneously, right? And, and, th- and that's a big difference. So a, a prisoner's dilemma where there is no collaboration between the two sides ends up by hurting both Britain and the EU through lower trade. That would be the major outcome, lower trade between the biggest trading area in the world, the EU, and a G7 economy. And that's not a good outcome for either side. Of course, he's the chief economic advisor to Allianz, a columnist for uh, Bloomberg View. Mohammed, let me ask you about what you heard from Donald Tusk when he spoke on the heels of of Theresa May's speech. He talked about unanimity. He talked about the 27 remaining members speaking with one Voice As you travel through Europe, as you look at the political and economic landscape in Europe, how rooted in fact is what Mr. Tusk said? It is rooted in hope more than, than fact right now. And that is because the fundamental issue is the following, David. When you run sophisticated market economies at low growth for a long time, and when the benefits of that growth are, are perceived to go to a small segment of the population, things start to break. They break politically, institutionally, financially, and economically. And that is a situation for Europe right now. It has to be very careful because society is responding to the lack of inclusive growth. So it's very hard to get the sort of harmony and solidarity that EU politicians would like to get at this point. And and they've got to realize this. 
To get back to John Maynard Smith, and not John Maynard Keynes, folks, this is somebody different. <laughs> Dr. Elarian, is Donald Trump a true hawk? I mean, the classic discussion in academics is hawk dove within the game of chicken, the brinksmanship of, of, of how we act. He loves to, pers- the president loves to, pers- to, to posture as a hawk. Is he a true hawk? I think first um, we I don't I certainly don't have enough data point to respond Fair. to but I, I would Fair. say the major issue is the balance between tactical and strategic to what extent is the administration pursuing tactical objectives and how is is reconciling this with the strategic objective for the most powerful economy in the world and that's going to be critical not just for the well-being of the u.s and the global economy but also for whether asset prices can be validated given where they are right now well then i'd go to brinksmanship are you suggesting back to dulles 50 years ago this goes back to all the tensions folks that dr Schelling was acclaimed for is this a new is it almost a neo brinksmanship all these tensions that we've seen in the first 80 days of this administration it is vis-a-vis the rest of the world. I think the rest of the world now realizes that the U.S. wants a better deal, that the U.S. will not be yeah. the global police um, at, at, at no cost to the rest of the world. And, and the rest of the world is, is seeing the U.S. flex its muscles in a way that it hasn't before. The problem, and this is really important, Tom and David, the problem is that you cannot replace something with nothing. So, so you have to be clear as to what does the new world economic order look like. And that's a question mark that when I travel outside the U.S., people are asking the, same, the questions over and over again. What is, it going to, what is it going to be look like? Is it going to fragment economically right. in trade, in payments or not? And, and David, I bring this up after what we saw in Ankara yesterday with Secretary Tillerson. I don't know, you know, as, as Dr. Larian says, what, what are we going to with Turkey? And to that question, what does the new economic outlook look like? You had um, President Xi Jinping speaking in Davos, trying to really craft a new economic outlook. And certainly that's going to come yes. into crystalline focus next week when he meets with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago in, in Florida. Let's come back uh, with Dr. Larry and talk great. a bit about that. I hope you just I, I just made a decision, folks, that with Dr. Larry and we, we wouldn't go, what's the Fed, what's the Fed going to do, et cetera, <laughs> that we'd really talk about a lot of these theories behind the strategy and tactics of this changing uh, world. I know, Mohammed, you were lending an ear to the interview that our colleague Michael McKee just did with Bill Dudley, the president of the New York Fed. And I wonder what stood out to you. I, we were listening here for some commentary on unwinding that balance sheet. Yeah, that was a great interview by Mike McKee. Um, two things stood out to me, one very specific and one more general. The very specific, as you say, were the balance sheet remarks, particularly that this could be a late 2017 issue, and that they don't have strong feelings as to the sequencing of balance sheet normalization. I think that is the issue that the market would look most into. But there's a more general aspect. Until Dudley's comments today, most of the Fed speak we heard this week was hinting that the Fed was getting more confident about the economy, somewhat more assertive with markets, and was keeping an eye on asset prices. Um, Dudley didn't go back to that. Dudley was much more dovish than that. So it's interesting to see that, that you didn't get as much consistency in signals as you got ahead of the last FOMC meeting when the Fed really um, changed market expectations. We've had a conversation throughout the week about the relationship between the soft data uh, and the hard data. Tobias Lefkowitz earlier in the week saying he's looking at soft data as a firm indicator of of what's happening with the hard data. It's leading uh, the hard data. How do you see it? It's something that Bill Dudley talked about this morning with Michael McKean. Yeah, he, and he said what everybody has noticed so far, which is that the much improved sentiment, both for household and business indicators, not yet reflected in hard data. Um, I don't know whether it's a firm leading indicator or whether it's a soft leading indicator. It certainly will have an impact on behaviors, but I wouldn't say it's a firm leading indicator. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let me change gears here, and we thank you always for your coverage. Uh, the soft data and the hard data of the asset management business is coming uh, to a thunderous end of this quarter with restructurings at Fidelity, BlackRock, et cetera, and on and on. You are truly one of the great experts on this. Your work for years at PIMCO and, of course, your work for Harvard Management. They've just gone through their own 
active management restructuring. Can you tell a kid at your Cambridge to go into active management in 2017? I would tell them if you go into active management, make sure it's in the less perfect asset classes. So don't go into active management on U.S. stocks. Go into active management on high yield, on emerging markets, where there are clear market imperfections Mm -hmm. and where you can be more confident about adding value. Um, I I think the whole passive versus active debate is going to get much more sophisticated and people are going to realize it depends on what asset class. But that is just one of the big themes that's going to define right. asset management over the next few years, and asset management is going to change. Steve Eisman was with us uh, earlier today, of course, the great investor, and he was acclaimed in the movie The Big Short uh, as well. Dr. Alarian, Steve Eisman said all of this debate's going to go away, and what active management needs is an end to the great distortion. They need a normalized fixed income and short-term paper market that's not there now. When we finally normalize interest rates somewhere in our lifetime, will that assist active managers? Yes. I mean, think of you being on the field where the referee is also playing on the other side. It makes life very complicated. And when the referee is a central bank pursuing non-commercial objectives using market instruments, then it makes active management even more complicated. Yeah. And, and that's been the reality since the global financial crisis. And for me, it's not a big surprise that quite a few sophisticated hedge funds have decided to exit right. um, because it's a world its a world where you've got to predict non-commercial decisions, and that's really hard. Yeah, I, I strongly support that. Do you see, Gura, how El Arian does that? He always brings in a New York Jets model into a discussion of asset management where the Jets lose because the referee's on the other side. You see how There you go. He, he always goes crazy. But, Tom, Tom, with all respect, only you read this as a complaint about the ah. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> let, me, let me finish here with uh, with where we began. Uh, we have this meeting coming up next week. President Xi Jinping is going to be in West Palm Beach with the President of the United States. We had a conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter about, among other things, grand strategy in the year 2017. What's it going to look like when we see Chinese grand strategy mixed with whatever the diplomatic outlook is that President Trump is, is pioneering in Washington, D.C.? What do you expect to come out of that meeting? What's going to be central to the conversations about the global economy there at Mar-a-Lago? So I think, it's, it's, first, it's important that they're looking to put the executive orders on trade out before that meeting, because that's going to define a little bit the U.S. getting tougher on this notion of bilateral deficits and also on this notion of anti-dumping um, penalties that haven't been collected. I think what you're going to see is going to be rather more reconciliatory than anything else. I think what you're going to see is two of the the two biggest trading partners coming together and signaling that it's in the joint interest of getting things together. I don't think you're going to see fireworks, to tell you the truth. This has been fabulous. Folks, it will be on our iTunes podcast I can't say enough about re-listening to Mohammed El Aryan on the brinksmanship and the game of chicken going on in so much of our economics, whether it's Brexit, uh, United Kingdom, EU, or it's what we're observing out of Washington and, for example, China. Dr. El Aryan, as always, thank you uh, so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.